Well, as we've been going through the book of Mark, we've talked about it just in the context of um, the journey of discipleship, of how Jesus shows us how to be disciples, how to be followers of Jesus. And today, we're kind of on the verge of a shift. Starting next week, there's going to be a shift in what happens in the book of Mark. But this is the last um, part of this section where Jesus is trying to reveal, he's trying to clarify who he is and why he came, what his mission and what his purpose is. And so that's what Mark is trying to show us this morning. And as we've kind of gone through Mark, there have been some weeks where we had to dig a little bit to kind of understand what he was trying to show us. Um, this is not one of those weeks. This is kind of where we say he kind of put the cookies on the bottom shelf um, for us. So as we read through it, you're going to hear, um, especially if you've been in the biblical theology class, you're going to kind of see some connections between what we're seeing here. So as we read through it, um, Mark is going to use lots of terms over and over again, and you'll hear those as we go through, because he's, in addition to um, that, kind of stringing everything together, he's using what we've been calling the sandwich technique. Um, he does that again this morning, and so um, he has, starts with one story and ends with another story, and those two are the sandwich. It's going to make a ton of sense once you hear it, so let's read that together this morning. Um, we're going to start in chapter 7 of Mark. Um, in verse 31 of chapter 7, it's page 894. If you're here um, and you're watching on the, and you're using the Pew Bible, if you're at home, you can turn there in the YouVersion Bible app. If you find us, it'll already be there for you. But we're going to read the whole thing together, um, which is a pretty good chunk, and then we'll kind of work through it as we go. So just listen as we go through for kind of connecting thoughts and ideas. It says, again, leaving the region of Tyre, he went by way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee through the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a deaf man who had difficulty speaking and begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. And so he took him away from the crowd in private. And after putting his fingers in the man's ears and spitting, he touched his tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed deeply and said to him, Ephatha, which is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak clearly. He ordered them to tell no one, but the more he ordered them, the more they proclaimed it. And they were extremely astonished and said, he has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now in those days there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat. And they called the disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, and some of them have come a long distance. And his disciples answered him, Where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place to feed these people? How many loaves do you have? He asked them. Seven, they said. And he commanded the crowd to sit on the ground, taking the seven loaves. He gave thanks. He broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. So they served them to the crowd. They also had a few small fish, and after he had blessed them, he said, these were to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied. And then they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. About 4,000 were there, and he dismissed them. And he immediately got into the boat with his disciples, and he went to the district of Dalmanutha. Then the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. And sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. And then he left him, he got back in the boat, and went to the other side. 
The disciples had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat, and then he gave them strict orders, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread. Aware of this, he said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember? And when I broke the five loaves from the 5,000, how many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? Twelve, they told him. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven, they said. And he said to them, don't you understand yet? And then they came to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. They took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village, spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him. He asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. And again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes and the man looked intently and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And then he sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. And so we read this whole passage, and we have this sandwich, right? There's two healings. There's one at the beginning, the healing of the deaf man, and one at the end, the healing of the blind man. And then in between, we have the miracle of the feeding of the 4,000, and then we have a discussion uh, between the disciples and the Pharisees and Jesus. And so let's kind of work through that and see what we can find out here. And so first we see that Jesus reveals why he came. This is, we see this in the first miracle. We have the miracle where he restores sight. And so what's interesting here is the, the Greek word here describing the, the man's speech impediment, his difficulty speaking, is only used one time in the New Testament and it's actually only used one time in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, just as a quick aside, um, you may the Septuagint is something you should probably be familiar with. Um, it's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, um, so they translated it into Greek in later years, about 2nd or 3rd century BCE, um, so the people of that day could read it more easily. Um, I think it's kind of like us having an English translation um, and so it's, if you read a study Bible or you look in your study notes and you see the abbreviation LXX, that's a reference to the Septuagint. So it stands for 70, which is how many people they had to translate it into Greek. And so that's just a quick aside. So in the Septuagint, in the Old Testament, this word is used one time in Isaiah chapter 35. Um, so I'm not going to read it yet, but I just want you to remember Isaiah 35 connects to this verse because it's the only time these words are used in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so Jesus, in healing this man, um, puts his fingers in this man's ears and he touches his tongue. Um, and sort of, I guess because the man couldn't hear, he's sort of doing some kind of sign language just to kind of, hey, this is what's happening. I'm healing your ears. I'm loosening your tongue so that you can speak. Um, so the fingers in his ears, kind of like, hey, I'm going to remove the blockage from your ears, from his tongue. I'm going to remove the blockage from your tongue. He looks to heaven saying, hey, this power isn't coming from me. It's coming from heaven um, to do this. It is God's grace and his power that is healing you. And so I, that's sort of interesting. But here's what um, actually John Calvin says something about this. And I think this is, this is important for us to understand. He says, the laying on of hands would of itself have been sufficiently efficacious, meaning it would have worked if he just put his hands on him. And even without moving a finger, 
He might have accomplished it by a single act of his will. But it is evident that he made abundant use of outward signs when they were found to be advantageous. Thus, by touching the tongue with spittle, he intended to point out that the faculty of speech was communicated by himself alone. And putting his fingers into the ears, he showed that it belonged to his office to pierce the ears of the deaf. Now, if you were just reading through this, and we've seen all the way through, Jesus has healed right, a ton of people at this point. And at no point yet has he made any kind of gesture like this where he made it almost like a show, right? He's putting his fingers in his ears and he's spitting on the ground and he's touching the guy. It made me think of like a magician, right? Before he does a trick, there's a lot of stage presence and there's all this stuff and it's like a big show to, to get people to see what he's doing and to reveal something amazing. And so it may feel a little bit like Jesus is trying to show off, um, but if you look really closely, remember he took this guy in private. He's not standing in front of the crowd, He's doing this on his own in front of just basically him, the man, and the disciples. And so I think this is an important reminder to us that Jesus does the things that he does on purpose, right? He doesn't need to do these. He doesn't need to stick his fingers in his ears or touch it or spit or any of those things, right? We've seen Jesus just last week. He cast out a demon from a woman's daughter. He didn't go anywhere, And he didn't even say, demon, come out. She was just immediately healed. So it's actually not necessary for Jesus to do this. But I think he's doing this on purpose. Because he's trying to teach. He's trying to reveal. He's trying to show something. And in the context of this story, he's trying to reveal more about who he is. And I think that's an important reminder for us. right? That Jesus, in your life, is doing what he's doing on purpose. You're not accidentally going through what you're going through in your life. Jesus isn't accidentally showing up at the times he's showing up. Everything that's happening, he's doing on purpose, right? Not just to, to, to have fun, but it's a purpose, purposeful action to reveal or to teach us something. He is trying to um, help us to see what he's doing, right? Jesus doesn't waste opportunities to teach us or to grow us or to challenge us spiritually, And so, yes, the same thing is true for us. Jesus could solve all of our problems with no words, no gestures, just a snap of the fingers, and all of our problems are solved. But that's not how Jesus works. He uses the circumstances and the situations around us to teach us, to reveal something about himself, to show us more of himself so that we will trust in him, so that we will believe in him even more. And so hopefully, if we think about this mindset that Jesus is doing things in our lives on purpose, it will help us to keep our eyes open to look for what he is doing, that we're in whatever situation we're in, that we'll actually be looking and saying, what is Jesus trying to show me right now? What is he trying to teach me? What is he trying to reveal to me? And then to actually even pray for that. God, show me, reveal to me, help me to see what you are doing. And then we see the response to what Jesus is doing, right? It says, they were extremely astonished and said, he has done everything well. And he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, there's a couple of of callbacks here um, that are here. Just a little bit of work will get us there. One is a callback to Genesis um, back in creation. And so when they say he does everything well, it's very similar to it is good, Right? And so remember, if back in Genesis, when God is creating the world, after he creates something, after every day, they said, he looked and it was good. 
right? So this is the same thing. Jesus done, does this and it is well. It makes me think of like the difference between Americans where we say good job and in other English speaking countries, they say well done. So good and well are basically the same thing. We're just Americans and say good job. I only know this because I took a mission trip to South Africa where they speak English and we did a basketball clinic and we all wanted to say good job after everything that all the kids did. And they were like, what does that even mean? Why would you say that? Like, we were toddlers not knowing how to speak, so you say, well done, in those countries. So it's kind of like that. It's the same thing. So they said he has done everything well, and then we get the line that he makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, remember the reference to Isaiah that we had earlier about the, the speech impediment? Right? This verse, this is what Isaiah 35 says. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy, for water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So this is basically kind of a paraphrase of Isaiah 35 in their response, that Jesus is doing the things that we see in Isaiah 35 paired with the word that we saw earlier. The deaf will hear, the mute will speak. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that Mark is using this in this story. And if that wasn't enough, here's what the first line of Isaiah 35.5 says. The eyes of the blind will be opened. Right? Sound familiar to what we've seen in this passage? And so in Isaiah 35, he's made this connection that the eyes will be opened, the deaf will hear, and the mute will speak. And so Mark is giving us insight into why Jesus came by making this connection. He came to restore and to redeem, which is what Isaiah chapter 35 is about. It's restoring the remnant to Israel. And so this passage, this sandwich that we're looking at today is all to ask the question, do you see clearly why Jesus came? Do you understand who he really is? And so we're going to work our way through that. And so now we're going to see next, Jesus is going to reveal what he can do, um, what he's really capable of. Now, this is the feeding of the 4,000. Um, I'm not going to read it again for you. We had the feeding of the 5,000 not that long ago. Um, this is very similar. Um, some people have tried to argue this is actually the same story, and they just told it twice. Um, but there's enough differences in what happens. One, the 5,000 was for Jews. This is mostly a Gentile crowd. Um, there's a different number of loaves. The bread is different. And so there's enough here to say this is a different story, but it is very similar. And so if you didn't hear that, you can go back and, and listen to it um, on the podcast or on the website or on the YouTube channel. You can watch it um, again. But I think the point of what Jesus is doing here is, hey, let's put the disciples in exactly the same situation that they've already been in. They've already seen me do this once. They've seen me multiply loaves to feed a crowd. Let's put them back in the situation and see what they have learned. Just to kind of, hey, let's see if they understand. Let's see if they can see clearly who I am. And so he tells them, right, I have compassion on the crowd. Hey, let's try to feed them. And the response in verse 4, I think, is, is a crucial question in kind of this interaction. Their question is, where can anyone get enough bread for this many people? Right? Where can anyone get enough bread? Now, they just saw this not too long ago, but they still ask, where can anyone get enough bread? Their thinking is, this just can't happen. We can't provide for this crowd. And then Jesus asks what they have. He takes what they have. He does a similar thing. He breaks it up. They pass it out, and then they have leftovers. 
So this is Jesus revealing more of himself, of confirming his power and his work. And Jesus' disciples' question was, where could anyone get enough bread for the crowd? And Jesus is showing us in this moment, he's not just anyone. Right? The disciples were thinking of an earthly source to feed the crowd. Where can we get enough bread? Who can bake it? Where's the closest restaurant? How much money do we have? Right? How can we do this? But Jesus is like, no, it's not about earthly things. It's about me and what I am capable of, the power that I have to multiply, to provide as the creator and sustainer of life. So Jesus is showing them again. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. As long as he is involved, anything is possible. All right? Jesus can do what no one else can do. He can provide bread for the crowd from a, a little bit. And so he's showing this again to the disciples to kind of help them to see clearly um, what, who he really is. So after the feeding of the 4,000, we're going to see two discussions, one with the Pharisees and one with the disciples. And what we're going to see here is that seeing isn't always believing, because both the Pharisees and the disciples have seen a lot of what Jesus has done up to this point. But we'll see kind of where they stand. So he runs into the Pharisees. Let's just read this one real quick. It's 11 through 13. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. And sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. And then he left them, he got back into the boat, and went to the other side. Now, the Pharisees come to Jesus, they ask him for a sign. This seems a little funny to us because, like, he's just fed 4,000 people with seven loaves, and he healed a deaf guy before that. So you're just like, what? I, there, aren't those signs? Isn't that what they're looking for? Isn't that what they're trying to discuss? And so what they're actually looking for is not a display of power, but a confirmation. Looking for a confirmation from Jesus that he and his mission are authorized by God. They're basically looking for verification or authentication or legitimacy. Um, think, it, think of it like a second form of ID, right? When you go places, like, hey, here's my driver's license, it has my picture on it, and all this thing, and it identifies who you are. And depending on how serious it is, well, there, well, you need a second form of ID to actually prove who you are. Or now we do two-factor authentication if you're doing stuff online where it's not just enough to know your name and password, your username and password. You have to have like a text message or an email that you can confirm who you are. So that's essentially what the Pharisees are doing. We see that you're doing all of this stuff and you can do miracles, but we really need to confirm why you're doing those and what power you're using to do those miracles. Because if you remember, way back in chapter 3, they accuse Jesus of kind of working with Satan. The reason he can cast out demons is because they're in partnership, and so he has control over them because he and Satan are working together. So they're not quite convinced that he is on God's side or that he's using the mission of God. So they, they want a confirmation. They want more because what they've seen is not enough. And he responds basically saying, look, you're not going to get a sign Kind of, I think, saying, look, just read the scriptures that point to the Messiah in the Old Testament and see if they fit. See what I've done. Look at what I've been doing. God is at work in me. The evidence that you have is enough. You don't need another sign. You don't need another confirmation. Right? So the Pharisees, even though they can see what Jesus was doing, it wasn't enough for them. And it made me wonder if sometimes we do the same thing. 
Can we actually see what God is doing around us in our lives? Or do we say, God, I have this decision. Can you show me a sign? Can you give me a little bit more? Can you prove to me that you're really with me? Right? It's similar to what the Pharisees are doing. God, I've seen all that you've done. I've seen scripture full of miracles and power and, and overcoming things. And I've seen what you've done in my life already and other people's lives. But for just this next one, could you just give me a little bit more? Could you just give me a little bit more of a sign? Right? That we've seen all the things that God has done, all the things that Jesus is capable of. And we just say, but I just need a little bit more. If you can just show me a little bit more. I think that's a very similar attitude to what the Pharisees were doing. And then he leave, they leave and then they talk to the disciples and they get into the boat and Jesus tells them, hey, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And so the disciples think that he's talking about the fact that they only brought one loaf of bread in the boat. Um, I think they're, I don't know, it's, it's easy as a nerd to say they're not very good at math um, because if seven loaves can feed 4,000 people, then one loaf could, I think, could easily feed 13. Um, if you want to work that out, how many loaves it takes per person, you can do that. I didn't do the math for you, but it's easily more than 13 for one loaf. But he's talking about this leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. So what is that that he's talking about? What is he trying to warn them of? And so leaven is often used to imply a teaching and belief and usually a false teaching or a false belief, something that has corrupted or could corrupt people. And so what he's saying is beware the teaching, the beliefs of the Pharisees and of Herod. And so what are those things? We talked about one just a second ago. The Pharisees believed that Jesus was in partnership with Satan, which would exclude him from being the Son of God, the Messiah who was to come. And so he's saying, don't let their doubts, their thoughts about who I am, corrupt what you think about me and what you believe in me. And then we see Herod way back. He saw him as a threat. And basically, any, just like any other prophet who, could ease, who he could easily eliminate. And so Jesus did not want these teachings, these false teachings, and understanding about who he was to corrupt their beliefs and thoughts about who he was. Um, later, uh, Paul would talk in 1 Corinthians about this concept and why it's so important um, to beware of false teachings about the identity and mission of Jesus. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is verses 6 through 8. It says, Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. See, the leaven of unbelief has gripped the hearts of the Pharisees and of Herod and has taken control of their entire lives. And Jesus did not want the same thing to happen to his disciples. Right? See how it says a little bit affects the whole batch? Just a little bit of doubt, just a little bit of bad theology, just a little bit of listening to the world over the scriptures corrupts the whole batch. Now, we may not have the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, but we do have false teachers and false prophets all around us, and it's really easier than ever to get a platform due to technology and social media and other things. 
So we encounter, I think probably daily, people that teach falsely about who Jesus is and what he accomplished on the cross. And so as we listen or as we maybe even evaluate some of those people, we should ask questions just quickly just to help us stay on track to beware these false teachings is, does what they say align with Scripture? If some of these teachers say they have a word from God, does it align with Scripture and does it come true? So those are just two simple questions and if if those things are not true, then maybe we should consider not listening to them. Because just because someone says something that I like and I want to happen doesn't mean it's true, doesn't mean it's a word from God, right? Even though I may sometimes want it to be. And so I think we need to be careful because even a tiny bit of false teaching or a false belief can affect our whole lives of how we view Jesus and what he has come to do. So I think we need to be careful just as Jesus is trying to teach the disciples, just a tiny bit can get us into trouble. And as we keep going, Jesus sees they are discussing the bread and how they only have one loaf, and he asks them a series of questions, right? Do you understand? Do you comprehend? Do you have hard hearts? Can you see? Can you hear? Can you remember? Right? Again, connecting the dots between what we've seen in the miracles and what's happening here. Right? Seeing and hearing and understanding. And if you remember back, this is actually the same line of questioning he asks throughout the book of Mark so far to distinguish between insiders and outsiders. Right? He quotes the, the, the passage in Isaiah, there will be some who can't hear and can't see even though they have eyes. And those are people who don't understand, who are opposed to Jesus. And there will be those who are inside, who do understand who Jesus is and they follow him. And so in this moment, he's basically asking the disciples, are you inside or are you outside? Do you believe in me? Do you trust in me? Do you think I'm the Messiah? Do you think I'm the one that can save? Do you believe that I'm sent from God for this purpose or do you not? So he's challenging the disciples in this moment again. And then to kind of clarify, he asked them details about the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, about how many loaves he started with and how many were left over. And then he says, do you still not understand? Which is interesting because, right, the disciples, when he asked about the details of what happened, they could recall it. They knew how many loaves were left over each time, right? Twelve and seven. Um, another fun fact that these stories are different, 12 is usually a more Jewish number and associated with the 12 disciples and all of these other things, seven is not as much. And so that's one of the differences that say, hey, these are really different for two different audiences. So just for fun, I thought I'd throw that in for you. But they knew the details of the event, but they missed the significance, right? They didn't understand what Jesus was trying to show them in that, obviously, because the second time they would have said, well, Jesus, you did this like two months ago. Can we just do that again where you just multiply the loaves and feed all the people? But that's not what they said. They said, can anybody do this? Can anybody feed this many people? So they missed the significance, even though they knew the details, which I think is another thing for us just to keep in mind is, yes, details are important, but sometimes we miss what God is doing when we focus on the little things, is to pull back and say, what is God trying to show me? What is Jesus doing right now to show me what is happening? And so the Pharisees and the disciples have both seen a lot from Jesus, but they're both a little short in understanding who he really is. And now we come to the 
other half of the sandwich, right? The next healing miracle. And at first glance, if you remember, it may seem like Jesus is having trouble healing this guy because it really takes two times for him to heal him. But remember what we talked about earlier. Jesus does everything on purpose. And so I'm not going to read it again because we read it at the beginning, but we basically have an exact repeat of the first miracle. Right? The crowd brings one, some, someone to Jesus and says, can you heal him? Can you touch him? They beg Jesus to touch him. Then he takes them away in private. This one, it says he takes them away from the crowd. The first one, it says it takes them in private. Then, this is a weird part of it, but he uses spit or saliva to heal the person in both times. And then there's a plea to be silent or to not go into the city and tell everybody what has happened. So this is exact replica of what happened before, connecting the dots for us very easily, right? This is about hearing and this is about seeing, which means understanding. But this time, Jesus tries to heal him once and he heals his eyes and he says, can you see? And he says, they aren't very clear, right? People are walking around, but they look like trees, Um, Some people said, hey, the fact that this guy knew what trees look like meant at one point he was able to see. Um, And so he does it again, and then he can see clearly. And so what's happening here in this moment? Is this guy harder to heal than the other people that Jesus has encountered? Is Jesus like running out of power and he he needs a nap before he can heal somebody else? Is that what's happening here? But I think a couple of things give us insight into what is happening One is that sight or seeing is a common metaphor for understanding, right? We still do this today, right? When you're teaching somebody something or or kids or, or whatever you're trying to show them, you ask, can you see how it works? Meaning, can you understand how all of this fits together? So seeing and understanding fit together. And remember, Jesus doesn't do anything by accident. We're pretty sure at this point that Jesus has the power and ability to heal this guy without anything. Restoring someone's sight, in, at least in our view, is not harder than bringing somebody back from the dead. Um, it should be easier. And so it seems like Jesus is purposefully using two attempts to heal this man. Um, this, just more side notes today, just a lot of extra nuggets this morning. This is actually... A testimony, I think, towards the uh, the authenticity and of Scripture, because if you and I were writing a story about a hero who had this great power, um, we would never put in there that he failed the first time and he had to do something again, right? So a lot of people say, "Well, why would you ever write that Jesus failed and it didn't quite work, and then he tried again and then it did work?" If you were making this up, and so just a fun side note, just for that. But he doesn't do anything by accident. And so what is Jesus trying to show us here by doing this twice? What is he trying to get us to understand? Well, we've just had the disciples experience a miracle, and they've been asked what? Can you see? Can you hear? Do you understand? But they didn't quite get it. And so Jesus uses this blind man as an example for them, that even though they might be able to see a little bit, and understand a little bit. There's still more to see, more to understand. There's more about Jesus that needs to come into focus. 
He wanted them to see themselves in this blind man, to realize they aren't quite seeing Jesus clearly, that there is more to see. There's more in the process of understanding. They see him vaguely, but it needs to come into focus. And so this two-step healing that Jesus used, I think, is intentional. It's meant to portray the gradual step-by-step process that we come to understand who Jesus really is. And not to give away next week, but that's where we're going to start right at the beginning with Jesus basically asking them, who do you say I am? And so we'll get the answer to that next week. But he's showing, right, understanding who Jesus is is a process. Yes, um, sometimes when we come to salvation or right before that moment, we have clarity on who Jesus is, that he did come to the earth to save sinners, those who were broken, and then he went to the cross to die in our place, to overcome the power and the penalty of sin so that we could have life. And you see that clearly, but all throughout your life, there's more to see, there's more clarity, there's more focus. Right? It's like getting a better prescription every time you go back to Scripture and you see a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. It's a process to be able to do that. And so as we kind of bring all this together, I think there's just a, a couple of questions that will help us do that, which are, I think, pretty clear from this passage is, one, can we see? Can we see? Do we have sight? Right, this whole passage is to ask the question, do you see Jesus clearly? Do you understand who he really is? Do you believe that he is the sovereign creator who can do what no one else can do? He is the one who can open our eyes through faith and salvation. He can clear the darkness and distortion of sin and brokenness so that we can see clearly. He can help us to see clearly as we confess and we repent and we trust in him. And then I think we spend all of eternity having what he has done and who he is come into greater and greater and greater focus. That as disciples of Jesus, it's our job to continuously be looking for who Jesus is, what he's trying to teach us, what he's about to, trying to reveal to us, how he's trying to grow us, how he's trying to tr- help us trust him more. I think, think of it like using a, a microscope, right? You look at it with your eyes and you see it somewhat clearly and then you put a microscope under there and you see things that you couldn't see before. And then as you keep zooming in and zooming in and zooming in and zooming in, you see more and more and more and more the further you look. And I think that's how it goes with following Jesus, is that the more we look, the more we understand, the more we seek him, the clearer and clearer and clearer it gets and the more and more and more we see. And so along with, can we see, the other question is, do we understand? Right? The purpose of this passage is not just to ask, do you understand who Jesus is? Do you know some facts about Jesus? Have you read some stories about Jesus? But do you have clarity and insight on his true identity as the Son of God? And I'm going to challenge us even to take it one step further than just knowing those things. But do the things that you say you believe impact the way that you live your life? Do we really believe that Jesus is the Son of God who has come to earth both to restore us physically, which he does in this passage, and spiritually, which he's trying to get the disciples to understand he can do in this passage? 
right? Jesus, when he talks to the disciples on the boat, he's not talking about how much bread they have. He's talking about their spiritual health. Do we believe that God is purposefully working in our lives and throughout history to bring us into a deeper and fuller understanding of who he is? I think, right, there's two choices. Either we believe this, that Jesus is doing things on purpose, and that whatever situation we find ourselves in, Jesus is purposefully acting in that moment. Or we don't believe that. And that's what he's trying to get the disciples to understand. If we don't think what is happening in our lives is on purpose, or at the least there is purpose behind it, then our belief in who Jesus is and what he's capable of is deficient. If we think things are just randomly happening in our lives, then we've missed something about the power and the majesty and the grace and the ability of Jesus. Either he is the sovereign creator or he isn't. And if we expect to grow, if we expect to be closer to Jesus, do we pray that? Jesus, show me what you're doing. Help me to see the way that you see. Help me to see what you're trying to teach me, what you're trying to help me to understand. Do we look around for what God might be trying to teach us? Because, right, we can always learn more, we can always know more, we can always understand more. And we've talked a lot in this season just in the pandemic and all the other things that came with it, and we preached through First Peter, which was all about suffering. We've talked about how God teaches us in the hard times and the difficult times, and I think we all kind of intuitively understand that, that there are things to learn in the challenges. But I think along with that, there's also things to learn when things are going well, when you feel like you're on top of the world, when everything's going the way that you think it should. Those things are not less purposeful than the challenges and the hard times, right? Jesus doesn't waste opportunities to teach us, to reveal something of himself. And so if you're in a place where everything's going great and you're doing well, you should still be looking for what Jesus is trying to teach you. You should still be looking for what Jesus has done in your life to get you to that point of how he's trying to shape you and to help you see deeper what he is doing and to understand more fully that he is the sovereign creator who is working in your life. So whether things are amazing or things are terrible, Jesus is there on purpose trying to get you to see him, to understand what he's doing so that you can understand more fully the greatness of who he is. And so the, the question I think we walk away with, and you can like ask yourself this all the time or every day this week, is can you see him? Can you hear him? Do you understand who he is? Do you see what Jesus is doing in your life? Do you see what he has done in the past? Do you hear what he is saying? Do you hear what he's calling you to do? And do you understand that it's his power his salvation, his grace that enables us to be able to seek him and to live differently. So the call for us is to see, not just with physical eyes, but with spiritual eyes, what God is doing. And daily, again and again and again, to ask, God, what are you trying to show me? Help me to see you more clearly.
Will you guys pray with me this morning? God, we come before you and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done in our lives. We thank you that you sometimes do give us passages that make it a little easier to see um, what you are trying to do to help us to understand um, what it is you want us to, to, to do differently. And for this one, it's just to see the power and the grace of who you are, that Jesus is the one who has come. He is your son. He is the Messiah. He is the one who can restore. He is the one that is with us, who is working in all, our, all the situations of our lives, no matter what they may be. So God, I pray that you would help us to see with spiritual eyes that we would be looking, that we would be discerning, that we would be open, that we would ask intentionally to be able to see what, what you're doing. That, yes, details are important and the situations we're in are important, but not to miss what you might be showing us through that. Because as we've seen here very clearly, you are always doing things on purpose. There's no accident the situation we're in. There's no accident of what you're doing in that there's no accident of what you're revealing or how you're blessing some people and, and waiting to bless others. That all of that is to draw us closer to you, to have a fuller understanding of who you are. So God, help us to see clearly, to trust you fully, and to continually grow into a deeper and deeper understanding. Help us, I think, is going to do that for all eternity. And I think the, the greatest example that I, I, I know of that um, explains that is just the end of the, the, the Chronicles of, of Narnia, where it's just further up and further in, that for all eternity we go further up and further in to understanding who you are. And the further we go and the higher we go and the further in we go, the more we see of your power and your grace and your mercy on us and the greatness of who you are. So God, help us to continuously go further in to see you more clearly and to believe more fully and to trust over all things. In your name I pray, amen.